We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right. Good evening to one and all. We're going to turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, if you would join me there. And uh, the last time we spoke about this, we looked at the Lord's uh, the Lord being questioned by the various leaders in Israel, and uh, not honest questions either. Unfortunately, they uh, was not good, and uh, so they first asked him about taxes. In verses 15 through 22, we saw that the Lord gave uh, some uh, good principle there. Didn't actually deal with specifics per se, but just addressed the general principle that. We're to give to the government what's due the government and to God what's due to God. And those two areas of, of responsibility, ultimately, therefore, because the Lord's word cannot conflict with one another, and if the government makes it conflict, uh, then the government needs to back off and Christians need to say, hey, wait a minute, uh, we've got to do what is right before God. So um, that's dealt with more in depth in the civil disobedience passages in Acts chapter 4 and 5, and uh, we've talked about that before. We won't do that uh, this evening because we're going to move on to another question, and that is a question about resurrection, starting in verse 23 through 33. Now, let me read the passage. We alluded to this on Sunday night, but didn't have real time to get into it. So let me read. It says, the same day... This is the same day as the question about taxes. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Here it is, not knowing the scriptures, number one, and number two, not knowing the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Just like in verse 22, the people there were marveling at what he said, and they they left him alone. Now, the Sadducees were like some in the city of Corinth later on some years later, who say there is no resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 12. These we would call today theological liberals. They would say they're Christians, and then when you say, well, do you believe in the resurrection? What is that? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead or the resurrection of believers? Oh, no, that's, that's just a myth. It's just spiritual. 
Jesus rises in your heart and you have the spirit of Jesus and, and uh, maybe your spirit will live in, in heaven like Casper the friendly ghost in the future and there's no such thing as resurrection. Um, they, they deny the supernatural. Also, Acts 23.8 tells us that the Sadducees denied the existence of angels and spirits. Now, that's why we call them theological liberals, because they don't believe the Bible. The Bible is very clear. We believe in the existence of angels and evil spirits and human spirits and the resurrection of the dead because God's word says so. We know God. We know what he's spoken, and he has told us his word. We're convinced because we believe in the God who has said these things. That's what faith is, isn't it? It's trust in a person. And when that person tells you something, like when your doctor says, look, it's going to be all right. You're going to be put to sleep. We're going to do the surgery. Before you know it, you'll wake up. Everything will be done. It's going to be easy surgery, we hope. And uh, (laughs) everything is going to go fine. Uh, You trust him because he's an expert. He's done this 10,000 times or whatever, and he knows what he's talking about, barring any unforeseen complications. So we trust in God, thus we trust in his word. So the the, uh, Sadducees, because they don't believe in the resurrection and they want to kind of get Jesus to validate their position or somehow catch him in his words or something, they construct a ridiculous hypothetical situation of seven brothers, each marrying the same woman, one marrying her after the previous brother dies, and in turn so on all the way down the line, so she has seven weddings. This is built on the teaching of the law that if a man dies with no children, then the uh, brother is to marry the widow and raise up offspring for the dead. Now, you might think, you know, that is really weird, Um, obviously you didn't grow up in that context or that culture, but listen to it in Deuteronomy 25.5. It says this, Deuteronomy 25.5, if brothers dwell together, so in other words, nearby to one another, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. What's that duty? Well, to have a child, and it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay, so brother A dies, brother B marries the widow, raises up a child, that child carries on the name of brother A, as if brother B had nothing to do with the, uh, you know, being the father of that child. And that was so that his name would not be blotted out of Israel. The family name would continue. Now, we're not as accustomed to this because we buy and sell property and family inheritances and family property lines aren't really as important to us. You know, we don't hold them necessarily in our family for generations and generations. In fact, today, sometimes the family of the deceased, first thing they do is they sell all the assets because they want the just liquidate it and move on you know, to the next thing and not have to deal with it. Um, so uh, it says then in verse 7, But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then they had a ritual they did, let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now this is a guy who doesn't care about 
the continuance of the family name. He's kind of being a jerk. Now, there are some possible cases where, like in the case of Ruth with Boaz, the nearer kinsman might say, well, that's not, that somehow that doesn't work out with his inheritance, and I'm not sure how that does. Maybe he himself had some odd circumstance in his life, and he couldn't, otherwise his property would pass on to the next, and then it would just be a, a mess up. And I'm not sure, I don't understand all of the ins and outs or the possible uh, combinations of that. But the normal case was that this second brother B was supposed to help out his brother A, show love for his brother and show love for his brother's wife and for the family line. Then verse 8 says, Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed." Now, what that was, of course, we don't understand that either because we don't understand, but that's, that's a shameful. That's a shame. A woman removes your shoe and spits in your face. I mean, this isn't a guy doing it. That's bad enough. This is a woman doing it and uh, degrading the fellow, and then the whole community knows that this guy won't do his job. He won't show love for his brother, the family line, his brother's widow, and so he is going to be called the one who had his sandal removed. I suspect that God used this penalty ritual in order to encourage the brother to do what he was supposed to do so he wouldn't have that shame attached to him. Um, this law feels very strange to us because we don't place the same importance on inheritance and continuation of the family line. I, that we do in, to some extent. I mean, a family who has all, say, all girls and the name is not propagated, the family name kind of dies out at that, that's kind of sad. Some people kind, kind of do care about that. And, but we, and, and this kind of thing could be, I suppose, implemented uh, to do that. But then how do you, how do you get the, the name back? I, it's a little odd. But um, you know, to understand it intuitively we would have to be immersed in the culture from birth and see it in action and know the feeling of the loss of property uh, to the family and the loss of the family name. And so that would help us to understand it. But we're not immersed in that culture, so we have to kind of just imagine what it would be like. But even in that culture... This scenario that they pose is so unlikely as to be a mere thought experiment. You know, no, that's not going to happen seven times, and no woman is going to tolerate that for seven times. And like, like I said on Sunday, she's going to figure, this family is cursed. i got to get out of here, <laughs> you know, get as far away from this as I can. Well, um, that's just a thought experiment. The basis of the thought experiment, I think, is this that the Sadducees assume that marriage in this life carries over into the next life. Now, what major religious group focuses on that idea? Marriage as an eternal institution. Who knows? Mormons. Mormons do. Okay? 
and uh, they place a huge emphasis on marriage in their Mormon temples, and, and if you could be married in the temple that's in Utah, and where is it? Uh, is it Salt Lake City? You know, you really, you know, that's really special. Um, that's an assumption that marriage in this life carries on into the next. Now, that's not correct, but just bear with me as I carry on with this assumption. So if a woman is married to two different men in this life, was, how's that going to create conflict in heaven? I mean, who's, who's going to be the one married to her? We're imagining now. With seven husbands in this life, the problem that arises in heaven must be really intractable. What are they going to take? Turns? in the heavenly state or something. Therefore, they reason, the, the, the Sadducees reason, because of this intractable problem, it shows that the whole doctrine of resurrection is a farce. You see that? It can't work, Jesus, right? You're going to agree with us, right? So, you know, assume, let's assume further that this is their best argument. They've thought about this for a long time, and they said, this is the proof that there is no resurrection. Jesus, you're going to agree with us. Or challenge him to unravel their belief system, but they believe that he cannot unravel their belief system. They think it's bulletproof, their logic. Their logic is bulletproof. He won't be able to, to undo it. But it's their underlying assumption that's faulty. You see, oftentimes people, you know, you've seen these kind of funny logic trains that begin with a, a, a false statement or there's a change of, meaning from literal to metaphorical, and then by the time you get to the end, you get to this utterly ridiculous conclusion, and you know you trace back and you find all the fallacies that occurred throughout it. Well, they had this fallacy at the beginning, this fa- wrong, they thought, fact, but it was a false fact. So Jesus corrects their faulty assumption about marriage in heaven. He says to them that resurrection, in the resurrection, resurrected people are not married. They don't have children. They are more like angels in that way than they are humans, okay? I'm not saying that people, when they die and go to heaven, are angels. Let's just look at that text again because people say this kind of crazy stuff. Heaven has gained an angel. No, it has not. Heaven has gained a person, a human being. Uh, Let's see. Jesus answered. He said to them, uh, verse 30, they are... neither marry nor nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. They are like that. Why are they like that? Well, angels don't marry. Angels don't procreate. Angels aren't actually what we call a race, a self-propagating race. Angels are a company. They were created fixed in number from the beginning. No more, no less have ever been added or subtracted. Okay? They're just, they were just created just like that. They don't have angel babies that grow up to be angel adults. So they're like um, these humans, us humans will be like them. And this is one reason why we teach that marriage lasts until, the, until death or the rapture of the church. Um, Romans 7.23, uh, sorry, 7.2-3 talks about a a woman who, if she's married to another while her first husband is alive, is called an adulteress, but if her first husband is dead, she's free to be remarried. So that's very well understood, very obvious, and well attested, not at all questionable 
in biblical teaching. Being married um, in, on the earth and remarried, if their spouse dies, is fine. But being married or remarried in heaven is not a thing. It's not a thing at all. So the Sadducees' entire story fails. Their logic, not really sound anyway, but even if it were, it, the first premise is bad, so it's irrelevant. So then Jesus turns to their false doctrine of no resurrection more directly. So before he was dealing with it, you know, in terms of this illustration, this, this thought experiment of these seven um, uh, men and one woman and all this. So instead of dealing with it indirectly now, he's going to speak to it directly. And he confronted them with two things that they are ignorant about. You are mistaken, the New King James says, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, my friends, if you, don't, if you think you're saved and you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God, then you're not saved. Um, you say, I'm a Christian. Well, if there's no power in your life to actually live for God, and if you don't know the Bible, well, that's why you're having trouble, because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. These guys are casting around thinking that they know what they, they're talking about, and they know nothing. They're, they're like blind guides leading blind people you know, feeling about in the room for the wall and the doorway and, and trying to figure, find their way through this life, they're clueless, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Both of those things, the Bible that they had and the divine power should have easily alerted them to the fact that their no-resurrection belief was false. First, addressing the power of God. It doesn't take a whole lot of mental creativity to recognize that if God has the power to create the universe out of nothing, fill it with plants and animals, fish and birds, and mankind and everything else, and give them life, breathe into the man the breath of life, and create him, a living into him, uh, create him into a living soul, then it's obviously no problem for God to enliven that life if it dies. He's already created it once. Why would it be hard for him to enliven it again once it's already been created. Resurrection is a reality correlative, correlative to the power of God. Okay? It's a corollary of the power of God. If the axiom is God is all-powerful, well then, you know, geometry proof number one is he can raise the dead. No problemo. Okay? Easy. Second... Addressing the Sadducees' ignorance of the Scriptures. See, he, he says this, um, you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God, and then he talks about in the resurrection they're neither, they neither marry nor are given. And then he says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken by God? Here's the Bible. Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 6. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 and verse 6. The bush is burning, and Moses sees it, and, and, he, and uh, God says, Do not draw near to this place. Take the sandals off your feet, for you're standing on holy ground. And then verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. This is what was spoken to you by God, saying, this is now back in Matthew 22, 31, and then 32, spoken by God, written by Moses, actually spoken by God, heard by Moses, written by Moses in Exodus, and he quoted God saying, I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The basis of Jesus' confident explanation here is the tense of the verb. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. Poor Abraham. You know, I was the God of Jacob. God rest his soul. I was the God of Isaac. No, I am. And is this subtle? I think it, we could say it's subtle. Is it true, though? Well, obviously it's true because Jesus said it. And the people later on, when they heard this, they were like, wow, I never thought of that. I am Yahweh. That's the, the meaning. I am the God of these people. Just because this is a detailed point about the tense of the verb does not mean that it's false or unimportant. If Jesus said it's true and it's important, then it's true and it's important. The point is that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Now, what we mean by that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive in some sense before God in that they're consciously in his presence. I specifically remember using this with Bill, not Bill, um, uh, Beard, Richard Beard standing right in front of me. And I think it was regarding his father. It might have been his mom in the funeral home when I ministered to them. But I said to him, Richard, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so what I'm saying, what I think Jesus is saying here is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not unconscious and unaware and dead and gone and annihilated and destroyed and all of that. Now, what we're saying does not mean that they're not dead people. They exist in the state of deadness, but their souls or their spirits exist in the presence of God. They are dead and they will be dead until they're resurrected at the resurrection of the just at that time, the spirit will be rejoined to the body and they'll be resurrected, a living soul once again. But presently, they exist in the dead state. But I think the Lord is using the word alive to say they're conscious, they're alert, they're like... You remember uh, the story of Abraham with, uh, the, with Lazarus and the rich man? And, he, and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man is in torment that passage in Luke 16. Well, they're all conscious. They're all talking to one another. So people heard this answer when Jesus said this and said, wow, that's amazing. They knew the Lord was right. How did they know that? I mean, you know the Lord is right because God has, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, planted eternity in your heart. 
You know that there's something beyond this life. You might not know exactly what it is if you're not a Christian. You might not know what it is if you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God, but you know that there's something. It, it just the, the universe can't just be it. My life can't just be it. I know that there's something operable, operational inside of me that's beyond just mere physicality. And people who deny that have just tamped down their spiritual part to such an extent that they don't deal with it and try to hide from it. There's something beyond the grave. Now, what you might say, what is that? Are they in an unconscious state of soul sleep? That's, that's wrong. But you know, maybe you think uh, soul sleep is correct. Daniel 12, 2, those that sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to... Uh, shame and everlasting contempt, others to shine as lights in the kingdom of their father. Uh, But that sleep there just refers to the sleep of death, not the sleep of soul sleep or unconsciousness. We certainly know that in later revelation, God's word, uh, in God's word, that people exist in a constant state in the intermediate heaven. We know that from Luke 16. We know that Paul went there. Um, We know that the Lord was there. The Lord is there now. Nevertheless, the listeners were astonished. They were captivated by the Lord's teaching. Um, He's the best teacher ever. You know, no comparison to the Pharisees, first questioners. No uh, comparison to the Sadducees, the second questioners. They, you know, I've often thought of the Sadducees. They're really not even teachers. I mean, they deny the Bible. What do they have to teach? They don't have anything to teach. They can just teach and spout off some, you know, fancy ideas that they have. The Pharisees were more like the legalists, the Bible types, you know, follow the word, and they put all these fences around it and everything. But in any case, the Lord outstripped all of them. The truth of the resurrection is sure. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all live, all be made alive. Every person will be resurrected, even unbelievers. Daniel 12.2 says resurrection, some to condemnation, some to eternal life. It's, it's you know, commonly thought that, well, only the righteous will be raised to life, right? You probably have run into that or even had that thought. What about the, what about the, the people that are unrighteous? Well, you know, if you just read isolated passages like Isaiah 26, 19 about the raising up of the Israel, nation of Israel to life, or Ezekiel 13, the dry bones passage that they will live and God will bring them out of their graves, Maybe, maybe only good people are raised, you think. But uh, that's not the case, in fact. If you look at John chapter 5, 28 and 29, and I'd encourage you to memorize this location, if not the verses, when somebody talks to you about the resurrection, listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Then they said to him, oh, whoops, I'm in John 6. Let me go back one to 5. John chapter 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Here's the division or the breakdown. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There is no third category, my friends. There's only two categories. You either are raised to life or to condemnation. Did you get that? 
Again, all will hear his voice and they will come forth. One to the resurrection of life, other, the other to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus is very clear that all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They will come forth, two different outcomes. Uh, let's look at another one just to cement this in our minds. It's interesting that there's clear passages about this that sometimes we get turned around about it, you know, and we kind of forget. Remember John 5, 28 and 29, and remember Acts 24, verse 15. Here's what Paul says. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. These are the Pharisees. That there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now listen. Both of the just and the unjust. Did you see that? Both will be raised. That's pretty clear. Both will be raised. Now, I just close with this comment. Why does God raise both the just and the unjust? Is it just so that he can take the unbelievers and annihilate them? Or maybe punish them for a while in some fiery hell and then annihilate them? So, let me get this. They die and they go to Hades. Then they're resurrected. Then they either go to more like Hades or, or, or they just get immediately annihilated or they go to hate, or like hell and then they get annihilated after that. How many punishments do they need? Well, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's one. Um, they're resurrected and judged and then punished. Um, you can, you know, ponder that about double jeopardy or whatever you want, but... In any case, um, people who believe in annihilation are cutting short the infinite nature of the punishment that we've been talking about in our Sunday school class. Um, so that's just a little thought on the side, but it's clearly the case. All will be raised, and Acts 24, 15, John 5, 28, and 29 teach that, and the Sadducees are wrong because they're ignorant of the Scriptures and they're ignorant of the power of God. How much more of an ex or less of an excuse do we have to be ignorant of the scriptures? We have Acts 24, 15. We have John 5, 28 and 29. We don't have any, any hope to you know, think we can get away with pretending ignorance. We can't pretend ignorance. It's right here in black and white or red and white in your Bible if that's how yours is in, in uh, John chapter 5. So uh, questioners fail again. Uh, to trip up the Lord or to get him to side with them versus the others. What, what would happen, by the way, if Jesus sided with the Sadducees? Well, the popular, there's a question about which side the popular opinion was with. You know, was it with the Pharisees or was it with the Sadducees? Um, I, I put something in the notes about that, but it was a little confusing when you read the different sources, which, you know, party was more popular. But in any case, it doesn't really matter for the sake of this argument if the Sadducees got him to say one thing on their side and, and their position or whatever Jesus said, if it was the least popular position, then they thought, well, he's not going to want to do that because that'll set the crowds against him. You know, get somebody to be pinned down. You know how you talk to a politician and try to get him to give you an answer? And they kind of like, you know, all this flowery language and don't really say anything so nobody will get mad at him and everybody will vote for him. Now, Jesus wasn't going to get into all that, but, um, yeah, interesting. So they hoped to maybe turn him uh, or turn the crowds against him or trip him up some other way. They didn't do it, of course. So 
Again, um, you, you have to wake up so early in the morning to pull one over Jesus' eyes that you can't wake up that early. <laughs> yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight, and I ask that you will uh, just sanctify our minds, put aside any evil thoughts that are there and any wrong thoughts, any distracted thoughts, and help us to see the wonder of the man, Christ, the God-man, who so adeptly answered these questions and points us to the scriptures and the power of God, a great place to, to be. Remember the omnipotence of God and remember the word of God. If we would do that, a lot of our problems would seem quite small. And I pray that we will help each one of us tonight to have a good night, a good rest, and peaceful thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen.